1: Perhaps no scientific theory has generated more controversy and has been more scrutinized than Darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection.
2: And we don't mean by religious groups, threatened by the idea that living organisms all descend from a shared common ancestor.
1: Since the publication of the origin of species in 1859, scientists from the various subfields of biology
2: and even outside of biology,
1: have challenged the importance of natural selection acting on heritable variation.
2: A major breakthrough in the 1940s put a lot of these criticisms to bed. This modern synthesis showed how the principles of Mendelian genetics and Darwin's ideas about natural selection were not only compatible, they could be studied in rigorous mathematical ways.
1: But there remain skeptics.
2: And to this day, one of the lingering critiques is the divide between small microevolutionary change within
1: populations... Imagine individual variation in the size and shapes of finch beaks. And larger macroevolutionary changes observed between species. Imagine the difference in the beak of a finch versus a flamingo. Another critique is that not all evolutionary genetic change is due to natural selection.
2: People like Motu Kimura showed that a lot of variation at the DNA sequence level is effectively hidden from natural selection. Maybe this variation can lead to those sleeping beauties that we discussed with Andreas Wagner late last season.
1: Perhaps one of the most famous critiques happened in 1979 when Stephen Jay Gould and Richard Lewontin published the Spandrels of San Marco paper, where they accused the field of evolutionary biology of simply assuming, without evidence, that most traits are adaptive. They compared
2: evolutionary biologists to being no different than Voltaire's fictional character Dr. Pangloss, who believed our noses evolved to hold up our glasses. They argued that like the non-functional architectural spandrels at the top of an arch and ceiling— Many traits that seem adaptive might not be.
1: Only a few years later, in 1983, Russ Landy and Steve Arnold published a landmark paper that provided a statistical method for measuring selection on correlated traits. This paper fundamentally altered how evolutionary biologists approached the study of evolution in natural populations and added that missing rigor that Gould and Lewontin sought.
2: Our guest today, Eric Svensson from Lund University in Sweden, recently published a perspective paper revisiting this landmark publication.
1: We talk with Eric about the legacy of the Landy Arnold paper and some of the challenges of applying it to studies of evolution in natural populations.
2: We also talk about how many of the critiques of evolutionary biology can be understood by the feedbacks that occur when there is reciprocal causation between interacting populations or between populations and their environments.
1: And about the philosophical underpinnings of evolutionary biology, and how this plays out and some of the critiques leveled against it. I'm Marty Martin. And I'm Cameron Gallenbore. And this is Big Biology. Eric Spenson, thanks so much for joining us today on Big Biology. We're really looking forward to talking to you about your research. Uh, your perspectives on the challenges of studying evolution in natural populations, your thoughts on the current status of evolutionary theory, and where you think the field is going. And I think to start off this episode, for full disclosure, I should start off by saying I've publicly referred to you as my favorite evolutionary ecologist, because we share a lot of research interests and uh, we both started our careers working on birds, and then we've moved into other organisms. And so I'm really looking forward to getting your perspective and to see how similar and how different it is from
0: my own. Thanks. I'm happy to be here.
2: Excellent. And the same same thing, Eric. I mean, it's been great to have um, you engage with us through social media as a podcast. Like Cam, I've been a big fan of your work for a long time. So to see you be supportive of the show and then, you know, constructively critical when, when you're not a fan. Uh, that's what this is about. That's how science is supposed to work. So thanks for that.
0: Yeah. I would even say, so in my case, Big Biology is probably one of the few podcasts I follow. So I have to compliment you for that.
2: Great. Thanks.
0: All right. So
1: let's jump into one of the, the kind of big topics that we have on hand today, which is evolutionary theory. <laughs> You know, modern modern evolutionary theory is, is built on this very strong foundation, uh, theoretical foundation in population genetics, quantitative genetics, um, and it describes the processes that shape, you know, genetic variation over time and space. But for those of us who work in natural populations, uh, there are all these very complex interactions uh, with the environment. And a lot of these interactions can really complicate uh, the study of evolutionary change. But you recently wrote this uh, perspective paper on the impact of the Landy Arnold uh, 1983 paper on measuring selection on correlated characters, this very landmark paper. And and this paper, as you point out, really provided a, a tool for people who work in natural populations to embrace sort of some of the, you know, basic core evolutionary theory ideas and and put it into, into practice. So can you give us a little just introduction on the importance of this paper and the state of the field, you know, before 1983 and then how
0: it's changed in the years since this publication? I'll try not to reiterate my whole paper, but I will... <laughs> try to summarize this paper is is a very important paper it's very well cited thousands of citations and it's now i published it this year in evolution and uh deliberately this year because it's 40 years since it came out and there has been a tradition in the journal evolution to have these what have we learned in 40 years' uh, papers, Uh, because our field is very slow moving, I would say. It's a very conceptual field. It takes a long time.
2: Very gradualist, would you say?
0: Yeah, yeah, gradualist. Or even stasis sometime, perhaps. (laughs) Uh, It takes a long time to see the impact. And this paper, well, first of all, it's very important to see the timing. It came out in 1983 and uh, rereading it again especially the introduction you can see that it's partly stimulated uh, La- Russell Landon and Steve Arnold who wrote this paper they were partly stimulated or provoked if you want to say by another famous high- highly cited paper golden loan in t- 1979 so those two papers uh, they ha- have a kind of one stimulated the other explicitly so they say in the introduction And for those younger listeners, most evolutionary biologists should know the golden Lewontin famous, the Spandrels paper, the Spandrels of San Marco and the critique of the adaptationist program or the the Panglossian paradigm.
2: The Panglossian paradigm. Yeah, we talked about this in my evolutionary medicine class just yesterday, as a matter of fact.
0: Yes, yes. And uh, we read that paper last autumn in my lab group. And then we read uh, Landon Arnold. Which came four years later because I wanted the students to get a feel for, for what the debate was about. And that discussion about the Landon Arnold actually helped me to write this perspective article. So, in short, Golden Lewontin criticized what they saw as excessive adaptationist, speculative adaptationist, poor science that you assume adaptation and selection, but without showing it. And Landon Arnold felt that they, by providing a recipe how to estimate selection, using fitness data, using data on traits, and using regression methods, which are very basic, not very sophisticated today with all our statistical methods, they felt that they provided a constructive way of avoiding to uh, go into this adaptationist trap. I even have a quote of them where they cite Golden Lewontin and said that this is the best measuring selection directly and quantifying. It's the best way of um, increasing rigor in evolutionary biology. And uh, then this became very popular, the use of regression methods, uh, going out and looking for fitness differences in a natural population, measuring traits, became almost what some call what we call a cottage industry, especially in North America. It became very popular to go and do these selection studies. But it was also criticized by some. Uh, It was more popular in North America than in Europe, especially in Britain, where another research tradition, uh, namely the Krebs and Davies, the behavioral ecology tradition was more prominent. So it seems like there was hesitance in Europe And Alan Grayson, a theoretical biologist, he even had a very critical chapter in a book in 1986 by Clutton Brock, where he criticized this Landon Arnold uh, method, because he thought it's just correlational, you should do experiments. And he even labeled them in a little bit condescending fashion, the Chicago School of Evolutionary Biology. Uh, which was not not a good thing because the real Chicago school is the the neoliberal economics under Milton Friedman. So, calling something a Chicago school, I don't think that was a compliment.
2: It was not meant to be a good thing.
0: Although, in in among
1: evolutionary biologists, I think the Chicago school definitely we knew who was there.
0: <laughs> yeah, we, that was the important Chicago school, mate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, that, that this has resulted in a large body of work where people have estimated selection in natural populations. And then in 2001, Joel Kingsolver and colleagues did uh, the first meta-analysis, where they asked the simple question, how strong is phenotypic selection in natural populations? Uh, and it th- was followed by several other meta analyzes uh, one which I was involved in. So the legacy of this paper has clearly been that we have we have learned a lot about selection, the strength of selection on phenotypic traits in natural populations, much more than we could before, because we didn't have any any metrics or quantitative methods to, to do so.
2: So, Eric, I want to ask, we want to get into some of the details of what they provided? How has it contributed to the development of evolutionary theory and where is evolutionary theory going? So for us to do that, I think we need to dig into some of the details. And I'm going to say a little bit about what I understand to be the history in the papers that you've written on this, what we're discussing today. Fantastic. It's amazing the diversity and the amount of things you've been producing on these things for the last several years. So that's really made it easy for me to, to summarize. Gould Lewontin criticized the adaptationist paradigm maybe there's more to think about in evolution than just walking in and assuming that everything is some sort of adaptive trait. Landy and Arnold come up with a method for quantifying studying selection, but that's an embellishment on the price equation, right? Which had been around before and was a simpler version. Maybe you could say something about that because I want to get us to what they did specifically that has opened up these new doors that led Kingsolver and others to do the meta So. How do we get to a G matrix? How do we get to this variance-covariance exploration? And what is it about selection they were doing with regression that was different than
0: others? First of all, there were methods to estimate selection before, but they were mainly univariate. They were based on one trait at a time. We know that selection operates not on one trait at a time, but on multiple traits, and sometimes not only in a linear fashion, it's also stabilizing and disruptive selection, and sometimes also on combinations of traits, which we call correlational selection. So the textbook way of teaching selection tend to be you compare survivors and non survivors with respect to mean, but selection can also operate not only on means, but also on variances and combinations. So I think it opened up the door to the multivariate view of, of selection that selection is a multivariate process and that the response to selection is not because only direct selection on a trait but also indirect selection due to correlations with other traits as i think that is a very important thing but then you also mentioned uh, the g matrix and i think here is one one interesting thing with the Landon arnold uh, school and their approach in general is that they state very early on, and I think this is almost sometimes forgotten that selection and inheritance are distinct phenomena they can start be studied in isolation. You can actually study selection without knowing anything about the g matrix of your organism and I would say in most organisms we study it's terribly difficult to get a G matrix or even a simple measure of heritability, but it's still valuable to study the process of of selection to give us an idea of the strength of selection. And There is also a quote in my my perspective article about, by uh, Ronald Fisher and his book from one thousand, nine hundred and thirty. The first sentence says, "Natural selection is not evolution," and I tend to think that is very often forgotten. Um, and I th- that selection is a within-generation ecological process that can be studied without regard to genetics at all. And I think this is maybe the main importance of Landon Arnold. It suddenly opened up for ecologists who typically don't, either don't have genetic information or are not even interested to contribute to the evolutionary literature by realizing that we separate inheritance and selection. It also brings in, it's an attempt to bring in the insights from the plant and animal breeding Literature and the experience they, they did there to natural populations with mixed results, I would say. So, Eric,
1: I, I have a question that um, I want to ask you because um, you mentioned correlational selection, and I know that's a topic that you've been very interested in. So, just to re- restate, correlational selection is selection that favors particular combinations of traits together. And so, that that's on the selection side. And then we have the, the G matrix, which captures how traits are both genetically correlated and how much genetic variation exists uh, for that trait itself. And so one thing that's always perplexed me, and um, I'm curious to get your opinion on, is that on one hand, we when we separate selection from inheritance and we look at the G matrix, It's often assumed that these genetic correlations and the variance-covariance matrices are stable and they represent a a constraint on the response to selection. But at the same time, if there's correlational selection on combinations of traits, shouldn't then the G matrix itself be the subject of selection? And aren't the patterns of variances and covariances also shaped by selection? It, It seems... It seems to me like those ideas are, are kind of in conflict with each other. I'm
0: curious what you think about that. That's an excellent point. And I think you're right. They are partly in conflict. It's an idealization that is maybe necessary to do for operational reasons to estimate selection. But of course, you're completely right. And I completely agree. I've written about this, that the G matrix should not be viewed as it maybe was in the past mainly as a, an evolutionary constraint but it's also partly a product of selection genetic correlation between traits reflect past and may, to some extent probably also ongoing selection and i think this is a very i mean we all three of us are organismal biologists i hope so i don't think so we are not naive naive uh, reductionist of the Caricature kind that golden Lewinin criticized, you know that you atomize the organism and see it as only some of its part. The interesting thing with biology is that organisms function together as some kind of more or less integrated wholes. and these these kind of interrelationships, genetic correlations don't or shouldn't just be viewed as kind of something negative but also something that's promoted by selection. Um, This is something that becomes very obvious when you work, when you do research, empirical research, as I do and have done, on systems where you have two or several discrete genetic morphs, like color morphs or something else, because there you actually see two or more clusters within a species, which are, so to say, reasonably adapted to what they are doing, and selection favors their two or more adaptive peaks within the adaptive landscape, so to say, within a population. It's good you pointed out this inconsistency, uh, Cameron, because there is, and maybe your next question will be about reciprocal causation, feedback. If the G matrix is, evolves partly by natural selection, and then it could feed back on selection in turn, so there could be a two-way street, so to say, and most likely is.
2: These concepts are hard to talk about without images and a lot of, of buildup. So this is a risky question. We do want to get to reciprocal causation, but a risky question first. How are you now thinking about epistasis? Because that's not really well captured in G matrices as I, as I understand it. But then if I can make it even more complicated, because I know it's a recent interest or a long-time interest to yours in a neat new paper on the damselflies, the role of plasticity and its sort of relevance to the Landy and Arnold paper and how we now think about selection.
0: Yeah, so first of all, epistasis is something I think we all struggle with, uh, even those who kind of are specialized on it. We're talking about interactions between genes, and that by itself is very uh, complicated. For me, I need to have a visual model to understand it. Uh, But maybe first, I would, I think it's useful to distinguish between fitness epistasis and epistasis in general. Fitness epistasis is when a dependent variable is fitness, survival or reproductive success, and it's affected by two or more traits that interactively affect fitness. That is a form of of epistasis where the effect of fitness is more than the sum of the two traits, they actually interact. And we can visualize this as a curvature in the fitness surface between two, two traits. A famous example, that many evolutionary biologists and ecologists know is Butch Brody's garter snake, who differ in in both coloration and and predator escape behavior, and where different combinations are associated with different fitness. There are essentially two peaks. Uh, So when it comes to fitness epistasis, I think in quantitative genetics, I think then it's simply selection operating uh, and it's an, the cross-product, the interaction term between two traits. When it comes to epistasis, uh, physiological epistasis between two gene products which affect the trait, yeah, that is...
2: Staggeringly complex.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's something which a quantitative geneticists struggle with. But I guess uh, one answer to that is that physiological epistasis has both a statistical meaning a uh, component you estimate, but also a physiological meaning. In an isogenic drosophila strain, you still have epistasis because genes interact. So yeah, I guess that's very down into the rabbit hole. Like, do you want to dig deeper? or <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, we're gonna. I think we'll come back to things like this later. I mean, it, it's right now to say that this is really complicated would be fine because when we start to talk about reciprocal causation and some other pieces, I think it'll it'll come full circle. So we don't have to go into it.
0: You should invite Trudy McKay.
2: Yeah, we've talked about that. We we had a conversation years ago with Mihaela Pavlicev on this topic too. The more complicated something is the more fascinating i find it i don't know why <laughs> this is almost intractable but how about plasticity so maybe the way into that topic tell us about this this recent study this amazing study across all of sweden that you did with so many different species of damselflies that was in ecology letters
0: yeah plasticity both you two are interested in plasticity and uh, i think the relationship between plasticity and selection i I've been thinking about and, and of course, now it has been quite popular the over the last 10 years, these theories of plasticity first, that, that plasticity can play a uh, initiating role in adaptive evolution so that an organism can, invading a new environment such as a range expanding insect, for instance, and encountering a harsh novel environment, and it can survive by plastically adjusting its phenotype. And then later on, this is plastic phenotype is genetically assimilated, so the trait becomes assimilated. I mean, these are very popular ideas and very, I would say, hot topics for, for those who want to see a greater role of plasticity. In this particular damselfly study, uh, we did uh, together with a former postdoc of mine, Stephen Delilah and Marit Mann, we we were interested in thermal plasticity with respect to phenology, uh, and we combined data from one species uh, where we have could do some quantitative genetics with the data from other species and citizen science data, and find there seems to be a role of plasticity in range expansion, uh, taking phylogeny into account. Maybe that's One example of of where plasticity can play a positive role driving adaptive evolution. But I would also say, before Cameron jumps on me, I'm increasingly also thinking of non adaptive plasticity or even maladaptive plasticity. And I think maybe there has been a tendency to assume that all plasticity is adaptive. Uh, I'm not so sure anymore. I think we can say for sure there is a lot of plasticity, but how much of that? is adaptive and how much is maladaptive? I think that's a very open question.
1: Yeah, so the question I had kind of touches on what you were talking about on the relationship between plasticity and selection and evolutionary responses. So my understanding in the of that paper was that you found that well I, I think first you showed that over the last I think 18 years damselflies are emerging maybe 10 days earlier than they previously were and that the the plastic response to temperature warmer temperatures is to emerge at a earlier time and so the plastic response I think the words you used is is very aligned with the sort of evolutionary response that you see within and, and obviously also between species. But the question I have for you is that, well, that type of plasticity would seem to be adaptive because it it's sort of aligned with the the evolutionary response that you would expect if that's what selection is favoring. But what I'm confused about is if you can solve the problem... Of a warming environment through plasticity, shouldn't there be fairly weak selection to evolve? If you can get closer to that adaptive peak just through your uh, plastic response to temperature, that would seem to me to weaken the selection differential, and then that should actually slow the evolutionary response.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's something I've been thinking about a lot too. But this is a general question, not about this paper, I suppose. Uh, And I agree that it's somewhat of a uh, maybe contradiction in plasticity research. On the one hand, plasticity is supposed to accelerate evolution, as a, a, a pacemaker, or whatever we could call it. But exactly as you point out, when it comes to temperatures, so, I mean, you had um, Marta Munoz on this show before, right? And uh, she has done very nice work on, on anolis lizards and showing that they thermoregulate the form of plasticity and thereby make evolution slower. Yeah, she probably talked about the Bogert effect This fantastic paper by Ray Huey. It's also one of my favorite papers, by the way, and it's, it's almost like you have, you have two opposite views of plasticity. And maybe <laughs> I wish I could solve it. But I think it's, it's something we need to think deeper about, including myself. Um, So I guess it's somewhat paradoxical, as you say. One aspect, though, is that it's not only about the strength of selection, but if plasticity also facilitates population size, enables a a species to have maintained larger population numbers under harsh conditions through plastic adjustment, it also means that the population size is not reduced as much, and thereby the strength, the efficiency of selection increases, even for, even if selection doesn't change, selection becomes more efficient at a larger size. So that could partly uh, help us to partly solve this contradiction you mentioned, Cameron.
1: One last question on this topic, I guess, is that thinking about plasticity and and particularly in the context of the Landy-Arnold equation. You know, one thing that we learn in quantitative genetics is that heritability is very context dependent. It's dependent on the environment in which you measure it. Uh, but then when we talk about genetic correlations and the structure of the G matrix, all of a sudden, the context dependency never enters the equation. And yet, there's a lot of papers that show that even genetic correlations are, are plastic. And so the underlying genetic architecture seems to be sensitive to the environment that you measure it in.
0: Oh, what a wonderful understatement.
1: (laughs) 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 And then I think back to the the selection part um, that you were just talking about, if plasticity and the environment induce shifts in the distribution of the phenotypes relative to some optima, it's also influencing potentially the strength of selection. And, you know, I, I can say personally, I've become a little bit frustrated by like the terms genetic assimilation and genetic accommodation, because I, I think if we could think about plasticity more in the context of Landy Arnold and have a better understanding of how the environment is affecting those parameters that we're trying to estimate in natural populations, I think we could make potentially more progress on a better understanding of how natural populations deal with environmental variation and and how that
0: influences evolutionary responses. It makes a lot of sense. It's funny also you mentioned uh, you challenged me on this uh, damselfly study and about plasticity and selection. It just reminded me now when I checked it, we have a graph, unfortunately, this journal, Ecology Letters, like many other journals, they have this limited number of figures, and uh, and and all the interesting stuff you have to check in the supporting material these days. I, it's not. I mean, I would wish we could go back to like, well, everything you should be published in ecological monographs or something, fifty pages. Or, that's actually a journal where I've actually been rejected once because the paper was too short.
2: Yeah, that's a rarity. <laughs> <laughs>
0: But uh, in that paper, we actually estimated selection on uh, phenology for this our target species in southern Sweden, the common bluetail dams. And in spite of the uh, plastically changed, the annual selection gradients were quite weak. So it fits well with what you're saying that plasticity masks selection, or plasticity dampens selection.
2: I want to talk about another paper, Eric, and I think it's going to help us conceptually tie what we started with, with some of the ideas that other guests of the show have talked about. In 2018, you wrote this paper on reciprocal causation. So before we get into the nitty gritty details of that, tell us what you understand that to mean, and then maybe give us some examples. The examples that you wrote about in the paper, of course, fine.
0: Yeah. Oh, now we are moving into the philosophical realm, and this is something that I think many of us are thinking about, and I and we should think more about reciprocal causation. is uh, sometimes called cyclical causation, and uh, in the philosophical literature, it's like when an effect becomes a cause, so there is not a strictly linear causation, so a cause and an effect, but the effect then becomes a cause, and then it goes around and around. Many philosophers struggle with this. I guess I've been a bit naive because for me, that's a natural way of thinking. I think we all, evolutionary ecologists, especially, we everything affects everything and it goes back. And this is what we do, <laughs> right? Good examples of this are maybe co-evolutionary arms race, you know, a predator exerts selection on a prey, and the prey evolves to escape the predator, and that feeds back on the predator, and so on. There are other examples. Frequency-dependent selection is another example where, you know, a genotype or a phenotype has a certain fitness, and as it increases because of selection, it increases in frequency, but since fitness is frequency-dependent, the composition of the population changes, and that feeds back on the fitness of the genotype so it gets low fitness or high fitness if it's positive frequencies so there are many of these situations and one very popular field um, that both cameron and i have well i actually was actually quite late in publishing my first paper where i used the term eco evolutionary dynamics it wasn't until 2019 so i was a, a last last uh, resisting but then i wrote my first paper with evol- eco evolutionary dynamic so now i guess i I'm in the boat with everyone. That's another example where you have a feedback between ecological processes like competition uh, and evolutionary change like, like ecology and genetics or ecology and evolution interact. So that is what reciprocal causation means to me in an evolutionary ecology context. So yeah, so I think but part of
1: your motivation for writing about reciprocal causation was in part because some of the criticisms of the standard evolutionary theory is that it, it sort of leaves out certain processes like niche construction and potentially plasticity uh, and agency. And you argue that uh, those topics, which some people have argued are left out, are actually well represented under this sort of umbrella of reciprocal causation. Can you maybe talk a little bit more and unpack what you mean by how those processes sort of fall under this uh, larger umbrella?
0: Yeah. Now we are also entering this debate that has been going on for maybe the last eight to 10 years, or actually longer. Back in 2007, I think Massimo Piglucci published this paper on, do we need an extended evolutionary synthesis? And it has been a debate that has been taken place not only in the evolutionary biology community, but also on blogs, on Twitter, and uh, in popular media and so on. And uh, I wouldn't say that it has been all bad. I think it's been interesting and challenging to think, but there is also sometimes you get the feeling it's a storm in a teacup. And I think many of my colleagues, which I, respect a lot. They, they feel that the current evolutionary framework is incomplete, and it leaves out many things, including reciprocal causation, niche construction, non-genetic inheritance, plasticity, and so on, and a range of interesting phenomena. And I agree very much, these are very interesting phenomena, uh, and especially maybe reciprocal causation and feedbacks is, is something we really need to think about. But then uh, in this criticism of what's sometimes called standard evolutionary theory, and the more I read about it, the more confused I, I get about if there even exists something that that we can meaningful label as standard evolutionary theory, regardless of which, which position we take in these debates, because what's often, often coming up is the so-called modern synthesis, this, this uh, framework that emerged from the 1930s to, and ended in 1950s, the synthesis between natural history, Darwinism and Mendelism. This modern synthesis is often criticized by those who want to see reform against a more modern version, where we are starting to talk more about these things that are presumably left out of evolutionary theory. And that includes reciprocal causation, they claim. I uh, feel that description of history is somewhat misleading. This can easily become an identity political debate. Are you for or against the modern synthesis? I, I think I'm not neither for or against. It's something that happened. It's a very important part of our history, but we have moved beyond it. I think it's interesting to discuss uh, what was missing from the modern synthesis and what we have what what we need to incorporate today but i would say it's slightly misleading as has sometimes been made particularly by clutch in 2007 that we still live in the modern synthesis era i would argue we left the modern synthesis already in the 70s Uh, so we we have been living in a post-synthesis era for quite a few decades now while I agree that the modern synthesis was incomplete in some sense, it left out developmental biology, for instance, that's the most famous example. I would also say there are other criticisms one could have against the modern synthesis that you typically don't hear from the reform camp, so to say. It's striking when you read the literature about the modern synthesis, for instance, how None of the architects, Meyer, Dobchansky, or anyone, even tried to estimate selection. It was just assumed. There were not many field biologists. Ernst Meyer never did, to my knowledge, any field biological study where you actually went out in nature, marked things, and looked at survivorship. So ecology was also left out of the modern synthesis, but it has kind of gradually entered evolutionary biology from the 60s and onwards. And I think it's a process that's still ongoing.
2: Well, these these are fair points, Eric. And I mean, you you said you've listened to a lot of the show, so it's, it's clear that we have touched this topic many different times. I mean, it's been useful for me to do this show because it's helped to, I think, it makes me feel like my thinking is clearer on these topics. I wonder what you think about... It's like change in, I don't want to put words in in folks' mouths, but maybe the push for an update, an extended evolutionary synthesis. To me, I think what people, what I read people to be asking for is let's make efforts to develop a cohesive single theory of life, Right which inherently includes evolution by natural selection, the modern synthesis, variants thereof, and all the niche construction bells and whistles and such. I mean, is that a reasonable thing to ask for? Or is that so like epistasis, so grandiose that we can all agree, but we can't make progress?
0: That's a very interesting question because that is what, what do we want our field to be? Do we want some kind of grand unifying theory? Or do we accept that our field is somewhat fractioned, consisting of several coexisting schools or research traditions that are partly but not fully overlapping. I tend to lean, maybe this is slightly pessimistic. Uh, there, there is a, a science philosopher, uh, Imre Lakatosh, you probably have heard about, who tried to find a, a middle ground between strict Popperianism with its falsification criteria and Kuhn's paradigm theory, which has been accused for being very relativistic. And neither Kuhn nor Popper are very satisfying philosophers, at least to me, if you want to understand how science works. I mean, we know we don't go out and try to falsify. We try to find out new stuff, right? So no evolutionary biologist I know is a strict Popperian. But we are neither, I think, would be relativistic Kuhnians. So we think, oh, I changed paradigm. Now I'm doing something completely different from last year. We still maintain some continuity. And Imre Lakatos, he suggested that science consists of several coexisting research programs, each with a core of strong assumptions. And then there were auxiliary hypotheses called uh, like a protective belt. And that's increasingly in my view of evolutionary biology, that we have these research traditions. And that's OK. Maybe the, the modern synthesis view, which was at that time a very important step, that you could unify every biology in all its details, maybe maybe we'll have reached this kind of creative chaos, um, and we'll remain there. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, so. I'm, I'm curious, let's just juxtapose it against our sister science, physics, that does have some version of a grand unified theory. I mean, there's plenty of problems we're, we're well aware of. It's not fully resolved. Most levels in physics are cohesive, you know, coherent. What is it about biology that makes it different that it's not possible?
0: Yeah. Well, I think we can agree on a few. Natural selection is Controversial that it exists. I guess our question is rather its reach. How much can we explain by natural selection? Uh, but then we we probably have there's probably disagreements with uh, what should count as an evolutionary process and what is rather an outcome of selection. In that sense, maybe I'm a traditionalist. I tend to think of The evolutionary processes in quite strict sense, uh, what Eliot Sober, the philosopher of biology said, the consequence laws, natural selection or sexual selection included, um, genetic drift, uh, recombination, mutation, these, what some call forces. And then I think of a lot of other interesting stuff like ecology, predation, temperature, whatever we study. I think of those more as source laws they are behind so to say the consequence laws but they are not evolutionary processes in themselves competition and predation are kind of ecological phenomena extremely interesting phenomena but their influence on evolution is that they uh, give rise to selection i also think we need to distinguish between source laws consequence laws and evolutionary outcomes uh, and some Times it's difficult to distinguish them. But I, I tend to think, although I'm not dogmatic about this, that phenotypic plasticity is partly an evolutionary outcome of selection, either strong selection that leads to canalization or weak selection, when uh, more plasticity might be permitted, for instance. But then, of course, we have, as Cameron alluded to, plasticity can feed back on selection, weaken selection. So then it becomes more complicated.
1: Well, I think it fits in nicely with you know the ideas of reciprocal causation, but also something that you said, I think, that resonates with me is, you know, as a traditionalist, you see sort of consequences or outcomes of selection. And, and I think the topic where that fits in uh, and is most interesting, I think because of a lot of the debates that, Marty and I have had recently is about the concept of agency. And I kind of, I think as a, from that traditionalist perspective, see agency as a consequence of selection, which then also has the potential to feed back. Whereas I think uh, an alternative perspective is maybe that this type of goal-oriented behavior can somehow occur in the absence of as being a not a consequence of selection, it's just sort of a property of living organisms that just sort of is there. I know you've, you've thought a little bit about agency. Is is that consistent with your thinking or is that
0: different? I view agency as an outcome of selection, that selection tends to create organisms which behave in an adaptive way, whether it's homeostasis or goal searching or finding food or whatever. So I tend to think of not agency as primitive or ancestral, but rather as derived character, that agency is a product of selection. I think those who argue for agency to see something more, like I think Den- Dennis Walsh, the philosopher was on this show, I think he views agency as maybe more an ancestral feature, uh, independent of selection. I have, I struggled to to see how you could have an agency without selection. I'm, quite skeptical, but I'm willing to change my mind if somebody could show convincingly that this can exist. But let me just say, give a little bit of a warning here when we talk about agency. We talked a little bit about plasticity and whether it's adaptive or non-adaptive. And I think we should not forget the message from Golden Lewontin about avoiding falling into the adaptationist trap to interpret what we see in nature as being functional, being good for the organism, being adaptive, I think there is still some criticism that is valid. That was a criticism against naive sociobiology and behavioral ecology, that we assume that organisms do this and that and they are perfectly adapted to their environment. And I would say And that has been a very successful assumption in much of of optimality biology and and behavioral ecology, that organisms are extremely well adapted. But there are also notable examples when they are not. And my favorite example, if I can go back to my favorite insects are dragonflies and damselflies. And I just got a WhatsApp message from a former student in India, who saw a car with its windshield and she saw a dragonfly female trying to lay eggs on the windshield because it's thought that the windshield was water it was lured Uh, that's what we call an ecological trap the dragonfly female thinks she lays eggs in water but she dumps her egg on a hot windshield it will be maladaptive so the dragonfly female there in that case has some agency, but it's obviously not very functional. Uh, It's goal-oriented, but it leads wrong. You could argue the same with moths flying into light, I have a light trap, I catch moths.
2: Or or humans eating too many cheeseburgers, right?
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. There are definitely um, situations where I think agential thinking uh, that can be very successful can also lead you in the wrong direction.
2: That's that's really interesting, Eric. I So I'm obviously a big fan of this concept, hence uh, Cam and my never-ending, we'll call them conversations. They're a little more heated than that sometimes, but that's what friends do. I don't think of agency as exclusively adaptive. In fact, I mean, I was so excited to see your paper on reciprocal causation because I thought I was going to read you to say agency is just a form of reciprocal causality. What's the problem? Let's let's get excited about this. There's an interesting part of your paper so as, as Cam set up, it is written in response to the calls for the extended evolutionary synthesis and you present the nice examples well reciprocal causality is a common thing for a lot of biology. we all study it. and you say that Kevin Laland and colleagues this was specifically in response to something that th- that group had written they said that the reason for an extended evolutionary synthesis was the need to address organismal agency. But then you proceeded to give examples that were, you know, eco-evolutionary dynamics, host parasite, predator prey, arms races, and that's all fine. But why did, I was just wondering why there wasn't an example or a sort of deconstruction of the idea that organismal agency was reciprocal causality. I mean,
0: isn't it? very interesting that you say, I have to admit that in 2018, or rather 2017, uh, when I uh, wrote this, first, I hadn't thought about the concept of agency a lot. I should search in the paper, but I don't think I, w- I used the word agency at all. It was just a few years later, I actually read Dennis Walsh's book about agency, and now agency is all over. Yeah, so I have to say, I haven't written explicitly about agency, maybe I should. The way you formulate this agency is reciprocal causation. I need to digest that a bit.
2: Well, there's a couple of episodes where we've talked a lot about this. Um, Dan Nicholson, Sarah Walker, Paul Davies, they they talk a lot about information. And so I don't know if you listened to our episode. It's Cam's favorite, (laughs) the one that we had with Carl Friston about the free energy principle. I mean, that conversation crystallized for me better than anything else. I mean, I think because it was so explicit in its sort of mathematical it was mathematically explicit, it helps to put some structure to what agency will look like and maybe even how we measure it.
0: I, I think I need to read that. I mean we, we need to analyze the words and know what we're talking about. But I think I have to humbly admit that my own thinking changes the whole time. It should be unless you're very dogmatic. But I think it's it's interesting to think about organisms. Something interesting in this debate is that we tend to focus evolutionary biologists on either genes, that's molecular evolution and molecular biology, or populations, which I guess is the traditional focus that I belong to. But the individual organism sitting in between is also interesting. And I agree with that. And I also agree that organisms are interesting and somewhat paradoxical. You have had Arvid Orgen here on this show, I just struggle a little bit, and maybe that's because I'm a statistically-oriented evolutionary ecologist. How do we develop a rigorous empirical research program on individual organisms? Because we need sample sizes, we need, <laughs> we, we, we need to generalize.
2: Yeah, and that's a fair question. That is a great question, and that is one of the most difficult, that's the biggest, one of the biggest challenges as I see today. But yeah, great point.
0: Yeah, and I, I think also, I would say also that paper on reciprocal causation, it was not only in response to Kevin Leyland and colleagues, it was also partly an obituary to uh, Richard Levins, who passed away. And Levins and Lewontin were quite early on with these ideas in uh, the book, I don't know if you two have read it, The Dialectical Biologist from 1985.
2: I haven't read it. I know of it, yeah, but I've never read it.
0: I I have a copy, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and that is an interesting book. It was my postdoctoral advisor who told me to read it. It's a very interesting book. Apparently, the evolutionary biology community is still very divided about Lewontin and Levin's because they because of this heated debate about sociobiology and and Marxism and the Cold War uh, that all went on in the eighties.
1: Yeah, the. Um... Yeah, it is interesting because I, I guess I, ha- I wanted to bring this question up to especially in the 1970s, it seemed that um, the separation between science and politics and maybe further in, in history was much smaller and that I think scientists today tend to be less open or try to be less open about their political leanings because it, it might for example, imply that, you know, you, you have a bias in one way or the other. But one thing that you're very quite open about your political leanings and and certainly the dialectical biologists Levins and Lewinton were very, very open about that type of thinking and that type of approach. And and so I guess I'm I'm curious from a sort of a philosophical way, how you see that type of dialectical thinking influencing the way that you do your own science and how you ask
0: questions and how you approach the questions that you ask that is very interesting uh, question and i think many biologists should think a little bit more about their world view and why they do things and what uh, And thinking about it again this i think marxism of course can mean a lot of things it can be this Stalinist dictatorships in the Soviet Union with a very politicized institutions and Lusenko and all that horrors. but it can also mean, and I think in, in parts of the dialectical biologist, not all of it, you can actually see a very refreshing analytical way of viewing the world and thinking about these cause and effect and feedbacks and zooming out and seeing things from different perspectives. Um so i think that book has sometimes been ridiculed and uh, unfairly criticized because they are at least in some chapters they are fairly balanced and they also admit that liberal or bourgeois science as they call it have also made important contributions game theory is one of those examples they mention explicitly so i think being open about your own views and not trying to hide them is in a way more honest than just pretending that you are just a an, an objective observer who says the truth, which I think is very common among many many academics. That's, I agree. I think that's a
1: something to, that we should think more about. so maybe we've been talking for a while i'm gonna just hit you now that we've we've just gone very philosophical and everything and you know i i really appreciate your your sort of thoughtful uh, reflection on a lot of these questions i guess my question my last question to you is just like looking forward you know you you just wrote this perspective you know landy and arnold 40 years later where do you see things going into the future what you know if we could go look at evolutionary biology in another 40 years where uh, where do you see the trajectory is there a trajectory or and and maybe you don't even need to go that far into the future but i guess you know where do you see the field what's the trajectory of the field right now where
0: do you see like interesting things happening i mean a lot in our field has been very methodological driven i'm thinking of the genomic revolution and so on but soon almost every genome seems to have been sequenced, right? So what's happening now? I'm quite optimistic for whole organismal biology and evolutionary ecology, because I think the low hanging fruit, the descriptive work on sequencing genome is over. We are entering the post genomic era. It's interesting, we still don't understand phenotypes and how they evolve. In spite of having sequenced the genome, we explain very little of of the phenotypes. This was also a disappointment in medicine, you know, the idea you have the human genome sequence and then you should have this personalized medicine, it has still not happened, right? The phenotype is still challenging, and there are many methodological problems to measure phenotypes. If we are interested in traits and organisms, one challenge is simply logistical. How do we characterize and measure an organism in all its intricate details and the correlations between parts. I would say, in line with what David Hull uh, in Florida have argued, we need a science of phenomics. We need phenomics after genomics. How can we accurately, fast, and in a high-throughput fashion, measure phenotypes better and in a more objective way to thereby study their evolution. That's a very methodological uh, challenge. But in two weeks, we will actually have a workshop here in my home university in Lund, which one of my postdocs, Moritz Lurig, is organizing on how to use computer vision to extract meaningful phenotypic information from images. And I mean, in many of our labs, lab computers and on online digital databases like citizen science databases, like iNaturalist, there's a lot of interesting information about phenotypes. You can gather large amounts of data. I have a PhD student now who works on iNaturalist database, and she's collecting a biogeographic study on damselflies flies with 100,000 individuals who never be able to collect that during a PhD with this very efficient tool like computer vision and machine learning, we can measure phenotypes in many, many different dimensions and much faster than before. So that's very much a technological advancement and maybe not as such not so interesting, but it can help us to do things more efficient and maybe also give phenomics the place it deserves as even more important than genomics. So I think that is one, maybe one way but then, of course, there are many challenges is that, you know, logistically in evolutionary ecology, we would ideally like to study many populations to see. But we know, Cameron, you know how much work it is just to keep track of one population. That's why I gave up on birds. It was too much work to work and, and then it was just one population. I don't know if we speculate if we would have small robots going out and collecting data in the field, but I'm not sure that would take a lot of fun out of it. Though uh, with the uh, AI tools, they are amazing now in terms of identifying species. That's just the first step. But I set up my moth trap in my summer house and I check in the morning and I just upload the photos and I kind of. I've been very bad with moths. I'm a bird watcher and I'm good at other insects, but moths are so difficult, but even I have learned them now. So.
2: <laughs> wow. Well, good Eric, thank you so much. This has been a fantastic conversation. Um, it's great to finally meet you in person and, and get to talk about uh, your, your research and things. So hopefully we can... Meet an actual physical person as opposed to just a virtual person. So before we wrap, um, we always give our guests, you know, the the chance to say anything that we didn't cover. Was there something that you wanted to bring up that we didn't prompt you?
0: I think we have covered surprisingly much. Uh, of course, we could have filled a, a whole podcast with damselflies, but uh, that has to be the next one. I, I think maybe I would like to say, and would be interesting to hear what you guys think about this. But I think there is an interesting tension in myself. In, uh, on the one hand, you're thinking and doing theory and conceptual problem. On the other hand, I just a natural historian who liked to be out and looking at bugs. Uh, and those two, I mean, ideally, they should, I mean, this is I'm the same person, and they should but ideally talk to each other. But sometimes I wonder, how much do you need one or the other? I mean, I admire theoreticians like Mark Kirkpatrick, for instance, who have no empirical research program, but I would have very big troubles in coming up with good ideas if I didn't have some very concrete organism that I could relate to. What's your thought?
2: That's how I feel. I mean, I'm at heart a natural historian who uses modern molecular tools, but um, it's, it's... I guess I am half a philosopher. I mean, I have as much of a almost as much of a background in philosophy as I do in biology. So the question drive is as strong as just being out and observing natural variation. But yeah, I would never be able to be a pure theoretician. I still want to understand things that I just happen to like. Not very many people like house sparrows, but I do, and I'm perfectly happy to study them because of them. They also are practically useful or or, you know, useful in a more philosophical or conceptual sense. And that's great, but there's just an element of of fun in it too. What do you think, Cam?
1: I think for me, it's interesting because I guess, you know, to some degree, for those of us who are empirically oriented, we're, you know, our worldviews are shaped by the organisms and the, and the systems that we've worked on. And so, you know, starting with birds and then moving toward fish and and now insects and working in tropical environments and temperate environments. You know, I've seen a lot of diversity and, and then, you know, the, the theory helps me to interpret and kind of make sense of the variation and maybe guides me in the interpretation and the questions. And sometimes that's self-reinforcing and my observations match my internal you know the 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 you're saying the two parts of me they talk nicely together, and then sometimes they're in conflict because i I have some preconceived notion, maybe based on theory or what I've seen before, about how things should be, and then I don't see it in that way and 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 then I have to somehow reconcile the the two sides
0: yeah, that's interesting because that leads us into bias how like uh, th- some years ago there was this about. Tropical bi in American Naturalist, the theme issue by Marlin Zuk and colleagues. I think that how te- we have the temperate bias uh, in a lot of of our theories and ecological and evolutionary theories. Most well known is perhaps uh, you know the evolution of bird clutch size. That that at higher latitudes, it's that clutch size is limited by food. David Lack. I was obsessed with that idea, and as a graduate student. <laughs>
2: Yeah, we we were all obsessed by that at some point.
0: <laughs> no, but but I also have think been thinking a lot about in terms of insects and and uh, sexual selection and particular sexual conflict that up here in the the north we have these short explosive summers uh, with a lot of individuals and much more antagonistic interactions and male mating harassment of females which are crucial to maintain these female polymorphism we are studying through sexual conflict but if we go to the tropics the densities are much lower so this kind of uh, this kind of density dependent and antagonistic interaction are presumably much weaker Uh, general trend the density density bias uh, so i think this is kind of our natural history background can both help us, but also hinder us from seeing things.
2: Yeah, good. Well, thank you so much, Eric. It's been a lot of fun. We'll do it again uh, soon, and do only damselflies next time. (laughs) Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, let us know via X, Facebook, Instagram, or leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And if you don't, we'd love to know that too. Write to us at info at
1: Thanks to Steve Lane, who manages the website, and new producer Molly McGid for producing the episode.
2: Thanks also to Dana De La Cruz for her amazing social media work. Keating Shamari produces the fantastic
1: cover art. Thanks also to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida and the National Science Foundation for support.
2: Music on the episode is from Poddington Bear and Taryn Costello.